0: I'm Suzanne, I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is August 31st, 2017. And my virtual home group is Freethinkers Living Sober out of Cottonwood, Arizona, although I live in New York State now, which I'll explain. Um, and I have a home group here in New York uh, called the Maradale, Maradale uh, group. So yeah um where do I begin I guess I'll just begin at the beginning and tell you guys my story of how I got here um starting with what happened um I I grew up in the state of New Jersey and I don't know how many of you here in this meeting would know much about the state of New Jersey but it's a very the culture there is very loud it's um very chaotic rushed and that's not me. Um, I always felt out of place in New Jersey. I felt um, very. Uh, I'm a very quiet person, quite introverted, and I was never comfortable in my own skin. And I grew up in a family where my parents were not alcoholics, but they had very alcoholic traits. They had alcoholic tendencies, if you will, or behaviors. They were. Um, very strict um they loved me and my two siblings more than anything in the world but they were very driven and they were very um, they drove us they wanted us to succeed in life in a certain manner and they were um you know they pushed us to do to do so we we needed to be first in everything not second we needed to have straight a's not b's we had to excel in everything we did. But at the same time, they tried to, um, my dad tried to push self-esteem on us, uh, pride. And um, my mom worried a lot. Her anxiety was extreme. And those two aspects of my parents both rubbed off on me in unhealthy ways. There was no abuse in my childhood, nothing like that, no childhood trauma other than uh, just feeling very awkward around my peers. Um, Like many of us, when I got into school, I felt very out of place. I grew up in, um, it was sort of the epitome of the suburbs. And we were the only house, it was a small town, but we were the only family in the town that, were outdoorsmen so i grew up in a suburbs where there was a lot of materialism and my family did not have that we spent our money on the outdoors on going on trips in the car uh, and we had my mother was a taxidermist my father and my brother were hunters we had dead deer hanging from the tree we were fishermen we ate what we caught Um, we ate what my brother and my father hunted be a deer squirrel rabbit pheasant whatever it was Um, my mom had little mammals in our freezer to do taxidermy on and my very best friend that i met in kindergarten tony she was actually not even allowed to come to our house for a while until my parents met uh, her parents because they were sort of afraid of us (laughs) because we didn't fit in so I never really felt like I fit in in my town growing up, and I always knew I wanted to get out of New Jersey. Um, but I discovered alcohol when I was about 13, um, about 12 or 13, but the first time I really got drunk I was 13, and it felt like magic. It was magic. I was suddenly talkative, witty, funny, or at least I thought I was. Um, I could. I drink the boys, and because my family pushed us to succeed in everything, you know, I had to have a thousand Girl Scout badges instead of just three or four on my sash. I had to fill it up, you know, that type of thing. Um, I decided I would out drink all the boys, and I did. And it took a while, you know, for me to um, to really feel the effects of alcohol. So I guess I was always able to just drink more than my peers. and. It did. It felt like magic. It felt like, oh, I found my answer to feeling so awkward around people. Never a social butterfly. Um, I got caught the first time I got drunk. Uh, I was actually at my parents had a little log cabin in the woods for the summer, and it was a lake community, and we would spend our summers there. We didn't have a phone in the cabin, and I was very late getting back my parents came looking for me and apparently I got in the car and told them I kept trying to call them to tell them I would be late. And so (laughs) I don't remember doing this, but we didn't have a phone and they could smell the booze all over me. It was vodka. And, um, I got very, very sick the next morning, but it didn't stop me because to me it was magic. So I had older siblings. One was, uh, nine years older than me. She's been in the program now for over two decades. And I had a brother who was seven years older than me. So they were able to get me alcohol and they did. (laughs) My sister went to college um, in a town close by, so I would go stay with her and I would drink beer with her at her dorm and my brother would sneak me And I would put it in shampoo bottles and sneak it out of the house and hide it down the river. And um, my friends and I would drink whenever we could get a chance to do it. It was an era where we could sit outside the general store in our town and ask people, you know, will you buy us beer? Will you buy us, you know, alcohol? And, And a lot of times they did. So we had a lot of parties in the woods and. We had a lot of cops come and a lot of running involved, and um, it was fun. And that went on throughout high school. Um, Never really got into drugs, smoked some pot, didn't like it, made me paranoid. I liked alcohol. Alcohol made me feel good, happy. And yet, even at the parties, feeling like I could socialize, I was still always on the outside of the circle looking in. Um never really felt like I found my tribe. I didn't really belong to any like clique, per se. I wasn't a a burnout, as we used to call them. Maybe I was, but I didn't hang out with them. I wasn't a jock. I wasn't a nerd. I was in these classes for the academically advanced, but I didn't get along with them. I I was in sports, but I, I I ran. I always ran, but I didn't get along with jocks. You know, I never I, I could get along with anybody, but I never really fit into a group, so I, I wasn't really accepted, I guess, by anyone. And that was probably self-imposed, but whatever. Um, the point is, I had a love affair with alcohol early on in life. In my twenties, I got her. I got married very young. I was twenty-two. I was too young. We were good friends, probably would have stayed good friends. Um, He wanted to go to motorcycle mechanic school in the state of Arizona, across the country from where we lived. I wanted to be a nurse. I gave up my nursing career because I also suffer from codependency, so I'm a double winner. And I gave up my dreams of going to university to be a nurse and went to Arizona so he could go to school. Um, we were there a year and I drank a lot, um, but it was still fun. And we went back to, um, the other side of the country again for a year, decided I didn't like the snow anymore, moved back to Arizona. And I stayed in Arizona for 24 years during those 24 years. I got divorced from my first husband after we had been married for about six years. Um, we just didn't work and no ill will there, no trauma, no nothing. He was a good enough guy. Just he was, he cheated a lot. And I drank a lot more because he cheated and I drank and at it and got divorced. And four months later, I eloped with an alcoholic addict um, who would be my husband for the next 17 years. And during that 17 years, uh, not only was the trauma and emotional abuse from him progressive but my drinking was progressive and by the time i hit my 30s it was no longer fun i married him when i was 28 and we were heavy drinkers and we lived in phoenix and anyone who knows anything about phoenix it's a desert city And the sun is extremely bright, and there's a lot of little dive bars, dark bars in Phoenix. And we would go there in a cab um, and hide in the darkest corner that we could find. And every time that door opened and someone would walk in that bar, we would just cringe against the sunlight like vampires. And we would just sit there and drink bourbon and wine all day long, take cab home, and... um, It wasn't really fun anymore, but it felt kind of like I was thriving on self-destruction because with each passing year, my husband, at the time, his health would get worse and worse. He was a a bodybuilder, a competitive bodybuilder, and um, he took steroids, and they caught up with him, and the alcohol caught up with him, and the pills caught up with him, and the drugs caught up with him, and his body failed. And as it failed more and more, he became more and more of a hermit and wouldn't come out of his bedroom. He switched from alcohol to prescription pills, and he was addicted to those. So the more he took pills, the more I drank. He would black out from Soma, and I would just lay there next to him drinking. I think my drink of choice was time then was uh, champagne and orange juice because I thought the orange juice would stop the hangover. And I would just drink, you know, and drink and drink until I passed out next to him. And that went on for a long time. I didn't tell people about the emotional abuse. I kept it inside. I would spend my evenings a lot of time sitting on the counter of our kitchen next to our garbage pail. Cause that's how I, that's what I felt like. I felt like garbage and I would just drink. Um, And it, it progressed into a very dark, dark place. We loved each other, but we were very, we had a very intensely dark relationship, morbid relationship. And long story short, at the end of 17 years of trying to fix him, because there was nothing wrong with me, my drinking was fine. You know, I was in control and fine. And he was the addict. Um, Towards the end, he used to throw me pills like peanuts to an elephant at a circus, and I would take them. So, needless to say, I discovered Percocet and Percodan, uh, morphine, Vicodin, Uh, They gave him every kind of pill. I, I don't know. Today you can't get prescriptions the way he did then. I never did take Soma, but I did take the pain meds. And Percocet especially made me feel euphoric and energetic. So all this time I kept my job because I work in IT and I work from home. So I could cover up my camera. I could do my job enough to get by. Um, And because I worked remotely, I would have Friday pool days with another alcoholic girl that I worked with. And we would literally go in her pool and put our laptops up on a bench and drink all day um, while we were working. So somehow I kept my job. (laughs) And um, finally, at the end of that 17 years, we decided... Uh, To renew our vows on his 50th birthday and we did we renewed our vows in a hand fasting ceremony uh the morning of his 50th birthday we had a dinner reservation that night that we never got to because at five o'clock in the afternoon that day um he very dramatically Uh, climbed a state park mountain in Arizona and put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger and died. So he killed himself and um, the trauma of the suicide and the 17 years prior to that put me over some kind of line. And my father had died um, several, just several months before my late husband died of suicide, so I had lost my dad, which was uh, very difficult, um, because we were, I was close to my parents, and um, then the suicide happened, and so instead of, he believed he set me free, but instead of being free, my drinking and my pill use just increased dramatically. And I spiraled. I was circling the drain for three years after that. And during those three years, it sounds like a country song, but I had a dog that was 16 years old. I had her since she was a puppy. She died. My mom got diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer, and she died. And four months after my, I'm kind of backing up now. Four months after my husband killed my late husband killed himself, I very stupidly jumped into a relationship with a man who was also an alcoholic, but he he was a closet alcoholic, very good liar, sociopath, narcissist, Um, everybody loved him. It was way too soon for me to be involved with anyone, but I did it anyway because I'm an alcoholic, and for almost a year, it was a physically and emotionally abusive relationship. I had never been physically abused before. I didn't know what to do about it. I was scared, I felt trapped. Uh, I did things in that relationship I would have never done sober. And it took a lot of pills and a lot of alcohol to get through that time with that man who I did finally manage to kick out. Not because he abused me, but he abused one of my dogs. And so that was the final straw. And I got rid of him, and I fled to New York State. My brother has a recreational farm here in New York State where he hunts and things, so he doesn't live here. And I stayed in his farmhouse um, alone. And I very rarely left that house except to go down to the local liquor store. My friend on here from New York knows the one I speak of. It's in a place called Walton, and it's literally a warehouse of wine and maker's mark, And that was my thing. Um, So drinking was now like survival to me. I, I became a daily drinker. I had red wine lined up on the counter. The whole door of the fridge would be white wine. And bourbon, the maker's mark bottle was always with me, the big giant one that you can get. And um, the only time I left the house was to go back to the liquor store and the clerk would say, oh, you having another get together, another picnic? Yeah, yeah, I am. You know, but I wasn't. It was all for me. And I would get through my day with a cocktail of pills because I knew exactly what pills to take to give me enough energy to do just enough in my job to keep it. Again, I was working remotely, um, so I could cover up my camera, uh, cover up how skinny I had gotten, the bags under my eyes, the dark circles. I no longer got hangovers. Um, I had the bourbon behind my head on the bed, drank it through the night, got up, poured it in my coffee, because it's okay to have it in coffee when you're working. And um, I had a boss who told me if I got stressed out at work, drink wine, have a glass of wine in the afternoon. Well, okay, I'll have a bottle of wine in the afternoon, and then I'll have another and another until I black out. So I was waking up all different places all over my brother's farm, and it was really isolated. He has quite a bit of land. It was woods and meadow, and I would just, like, wake up not know how I got there. Um, I used to tape notes to my phone and my laptop saying, don't text anyone. I would finally end up hiding my phone and my laptop because I would send really embarrassing emails or texts to people. Um, some guy I thought I was in love with that I was, it was just a friend. And just, I broke, I started to break my rules. I had rules for drinking, no driving while drinking, no going to bars alone. I broke those rules. I started to drive and there was a restaurant down in the same town in Walton called Danny's. And I went there one night and sat at the bar and they would pour the drinks, like till they almost spilled out of the glass. So I loved it. And I drank a lot of wine and bourbon one night at that bar alone. And some guy was coming on to me and I was so drunk and he followed me out and I had parked quite a distance away, and he followed me to my car and pushed me up against my car. And I honestly thought, this is it. I'm going to get raped. I'm, I'm going to get attacked. And so I got my car, and I fled. And I drove drunk, trying to find my brother's house. And mm-hmm. they're windy, twisty country roads, no lights, no street lights. And at that moment, I thought, let me drive into a tree. Let me just die, because I've had it. I, I felt that there was no one in my life that loved me, no one that cared about me. And it wasn't true there was um i just i couldn't see it and i couldn't reach out for help i didn't know how i reached out to my grief therapist for help Said i thought i had a problem drinking and she told me well it's probably not a good time for you to stop drinking right now because you've had trauma in your life so why don't you do me a favor wait till five o'clock and have two drinks and stop there so i said yeah okay So I took my pills, got through work, got to about quarter to five, and then I took out a big, huge tumbler, like you'd put lemonade in or something, and those would be my two drinks. And I did that for a couple of nights, but it didn't last too long. So I wanted to drive into a tree, and I blacked out and somehow woke up in my brother's driveway. That was a Sunday, and I looked up AA meetings online that morning, and I called my sister and asked her, she never talked to me about AA, and I said, what are the, what are these meetings? And she said, well, you know, if it's an open meeting, go to it. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to stop drinking or anything. I just want to see what it's all about. So I went, and I found a meeting that was a barn in a barn, a mile away. It was in a barn and I thought this can't be right, but it was. So I went to the barn and I was uh, waved in by a man, big biker man and I like, oh my God. What is this? And I went in the barn and they had couches and everybody was kind. Everybody was so kind to me. And that was the first thing I noticed about Alcoholics Anonymous was the kindness. And I felt that no one had been kind to me in a very long time. And I drank before the meeting and after the meeting. And I did that for three meetings. And on the third meeting, I met a woman named Amy who is here tonight. And... She asked me to talk to her after the meeting. And I still remember the topic of that meeting was one day at a time. I remember this because I remember saying something about how I wish I could distinguish one day from another because they all ran together. And she asked me if I would talk to her and I said I would. And I kind of remember her telling me to breathe because I never... I, I, it was like I never could, you know, and I, I didn't know how to talk to people. And she asked me if I would, was willing to go home and dump out all my booze, and I said no. And she said, "Can I follow you home and take it away?" And I said, "All right." So she did. And in Arizona, you can get booze at twenty four seven anywhere—gas stations, convenience store, anywhere you go. But in New York State, liquor stores close, and so when she She talked to me for a while and said uh, I was agnostic and she mentioned spirit of the universe and I could accept that and um, she left and said she would check on me and I was alone in the house with no liquor stores open so I was stuck. And I thought, well, if I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to take pills either. And when my late husband died, he left me Tupperware containers full of pills, full of Percodan. Um, That's how I had so many pills. and That doesn't happen anymore, but it did then. Um, And anyway, I didn't take any and I didn't drink. And I remember laying in bed, and the wind was blowing through the trees. And I remember thinking, well, tomorrow morning I'm gonna remember this. I'm gonna remember that I heard the wind in the trees. And someone had given me a big book at the first meeting and I saw this chapter to the agnostics, and I thought that would be about me, but it didn't seem to be about me. So I looked in the back, and there were the stories, and I read the stories, and I started to relate to the stories. And then I found the pamphlet with the quiz and the quest. Twelve, it had twelve questions on it, and I answered ten of them. Uh, yes, and I thought, Wow, am I really an alcoholic? And I didn't really think I was. And then I started relating to the stories, reading the pamphlet, and thinking, well, maybe I am. And I decided I would go back to a meeting and give this thing a try. But the next two nights it rained, and I didn't want to go out in the rain, so I didn't go to the meetings. I would have gone out in a blizzard for booze, but I didn't go to these meetings because it was raining, and I was scared, and I didn't know how to be around people. But then I went. Um, I went again, and I kept going back and um i got sober seven days before my 48th birthday and now if i you know stay sober until august 31st i'll have five years uh which is a drop in the bucket for a lot of you i know but for me it feels um amazing and so on my 30th day, I took a trip at a meeting in New York state and I went back to Arizona and I drove alone with my dogs, three dogs. And it was the longest drive I've ever had. I had a list of phone numbers. I didn't know how to call people. I didn't, um, I didn't know how to text. So I stayed in touch with some people through text and I went to a meeting in every state across the country. And there's a lot of states when you drive from New York State to Arizona. And I went to a lot of meetings. One night I went to a meeting that was on my app that told me where the meetings were and the meeting wasn't there, it wasn't happening. So I went back to the motel, kind of discouraged. And all these motels that take dogs are around liquor stores and I was thinking of drinking. And I got out of my car and one of my dogs is a Rottweiler and a man came up to me to talk about the Rottweiler and I could smell him a mile away, you know, smell the booze. And he was very drunk, and I didn't want to be him anymore. And I knew at that moment that that man was put there for a reason, and it stopped me from going to the liquor store that night when I couldn't get to a meeting. So that happened. Got back to Arizona and found some meetings there. Um, my home group was called the Red Road Meeting. They had a talking stick. They were American Indian oriented, and I felt comfortable enough there. We we sat on futons in a circle, and I was comfortable enough there to share. And I shared when I shared there for the first I don't know six months. Every time I shared, I just cried. And they were very nice people. I went to other meetings. I didn't feel so comfortable. It was very a lot of God talk, and I had a problem with the word God I really don't anymore because I'm more secure in what my higher powers are and I do say that plural I do have higher powers as an agnostic I call them multiple and fluid and they are Uh, They're. I believe in energy and I believe in nature and the um, many other things and I won't get into that too much but I found I wasn't comfortable in the other meetings, so I really didn't speak. I didn't speak for a long time, Um, and my friend Ginger is here tonight knows that to be true because she saw me in the other meetings, and I just didn't speak. Um, After uh, sixty days, I broke the unwritten rule and got involved and started dating a man in recovery named Sean. And he had uh, two years sober and I. he gave me my 60 day coin and we dated for a year, lived together for a year. And then we got married, we had a sober wedding. It was wonderful. And um, his mother was my first sponsor, so. <laughs> She became my mother-in-law, and I changed sponsors to my sponsor today named Tracy, um, and she is, uh, the reason I chose her for my sponsor is because she has what I lost and wanted back. She has, self, she has self-confidence, strength. Um, she is caring and empathetic, but she stands up for herself. She's not a doormat. She... Um, is 31 years sober and knows the AA program and could care less what I believe in or what I don't believe in. She's Christian. And we work together just fine with me being agnostic. Um, There's never been a problem. So I went through the steps twice with my first sponsor. Um, And then I started working with Tracy and went through the steps again of AA. Then the Little Red Book, for those of you who know it. And then we got into CODA work that we did for two years. And now uh, we're doing a book on uh, 12 steps on how to forgiveness. It's about forgiveness. Um, the My mother in law, she, um, well, let me talk about the steps. The steps, um, is what really did it for me. Um, the fellowship was great, but I was still really awkward and unsocial around people. Um, I really didn't like going to AA events. I didn't want, I'm not a social butterfly and just not, um, but the steps were awesome. And especially step five, step five meant the world to me. I was still with my first sponsor, I did half of my step five with her and half of the psychologist, because I get outside help for um, many different diagnoses. They don't matter. Um, it was mostly from trauma. So I started seeing a psychologist the same time I got sober, and I still see her today, and the two things work together very well. Step five set me free from a lot to do with um, shame and guilt, Um uh, mis- Placed, shame and guilt and other things that you know I really thought I'd go to my grave with and then step nine I went through my amends one amends took three years to make and once that one was done I felt so much lighter and um, it was a wonderful feeling and I try to live in steps 10 11 12 today and one thing I do remember, Um, that I should mention, and and I'm sort of backing up again, is when I first got sober, my very first day of sobriety was insane. Uh, I tried to work and I worked online, obviously, for my IT company and a tech came, didn't tell me it was there and cut off my internet when I was in the middle of a presentation to both of my managers. So I ran outside with my hair all sticking up and crazy clothes on, and and I um, started screaming at the poor tech, and I wish I knew who he was, because I never did get to make amends to him, but I was swearing and cursing and carrying on, and um, Amy checked on me and told me to eat sugar, and I, you know, I did, and it helped a little bit or whatever, but I remember I don't know how many days went by, I said to Amy on the phone, you know, I'm finally feeling some hope, and she said, hope, Suzanne, that's the first gift to sobriety, and so my message when I speak today is always one of hope, that there is hope, and I spoke at a meeting here in Meridale um, in person not too long ago, back in March, and I was presented with this key, and it I don't know if you can see it, but it's, it's the key of hope, and it means a lot to me. And I keep it by me now when I speak on Zoom. Um, and the steps, they gave me hope. So I just keep doing them, and I keep doing the steps with Tracy in different ways. And the two years of CODA really helped. And after, you know, I started working with, it was a year, I was a year sober when I started to work with other women um when I started to sponsor and I've always felt inadequate but I have Tracy to turn to if there's something when I sponsor that I really don't know how to handle and I find it an honor to do service and sponsor and carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous and um to be able to say to somebody new you know, no matter how you feel right now, you don't have to feel that way anymore. When I when I came into these rooms, my future looked like a black hole. It was a black void. I thought there was nothing for me. Um, absolutely no future. And when I got to be, I was, it was three, I must've been three years sober. My mother-in-law, um, she died of lung cancer and uh she was 38 years sober when she died and we were there with her at the end and um two weeks after that my foot fell asleep and i wouldn't wake up and seven days after i couldn't walk so here's my husband who's in recovery and here's me in recovery. And I ended up with Guillain-Barre syndrome and put in the hospital for two months. When I went into the hospital to the ER, they diagnosed me immediately with a spinal tap. And when I had a name to put with the disease, I thought, okay, great. They're gonna treat me, I'm gonna go home, everything's gonna be fine. Well, I was in the hospital for two months. I was, it progressed from my feet up my legs, from my fingertips, up my arms. Um, I was numb. I had nerve pain, and I got to the point where I couldn't swallow, and they had to puree my food and put thickener in my water. And it was a shock. And my friend Lisa from England, who's on this meeting tonight and didn't introduce herself, she um, was a saving grace because she has chronic illness and she spoke to me every single night on video. Um, about having chronic illness because I found out this would be with me my whole life and um, she helped me she helped me she helped me fall asleep my husband came every single day he drove three hours a day every day for two months to see me he missed two days and my sponsor came one and a girlfriend the other um, because he had to to deconstruct her house because what happened was I was discharged in a wheelchair and our doorways weren't big enough for a wheelchair, So he fixed our house. Um, The two months in the hospital were horrific. I won't get into it, but it was a shock. You know, um, I was a long distance runner, a marathoner, and a prolific hiker. I hiked Grand Canyon 10 times to the bottom. And now I couldn't walk. I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel my feet, my legs. Um, But you know what? I didn't take any narcotics. I took Tylenol, even though I was in tremendous pain, gabapentin for nerve pain, which does nothing to your head. And I came home in the wheelchair. And everything felt like uh, sandpaper, even my dogs. And I didn't think I'd ever get out of the wheelchair. So I was going to order a custom wheelchair. It was like $3,000 because I thought, I was never gonna get out of the chair, but I'm an alcoholic, I'm stubborn. I went to outpatient PT and OT for many months and I got from the wheelchair to a walker to a cane. And I was told if my feet stayed numb, I would never walk unaided, but I do. I still can't feel my feet. I have chronic pain. I have nerve pain. I can't really feel my hands too well. I learned a craft uh, called decoupage and we decided that we wanted to move, well, I decided I wanted to move back to my roots, back to New York State, and be in this beautiful place um, that is a lot like England. And I love England, by the way. I've been there many times. And I asked my husband, who's from California, will you go to New York State and live there with me for the rest of our life? And he came sight on unseen. He said yes, and here we are in an old 1865 farmhouse. I can walk uh, even though I can't feel my feet. I had to retrain my brain to feel my feet. Um, We have our own plumbing company, just me and my husband. He hit the ground running out here with work. We love our old house. We have uh, seven acres of land that we love, and we're gardening. And we have four dogs and a cat inside and a cat in the barn and we're living the dream and we're sober and we're clean I stayed sober through that and looking back it's like how did I do that well I did that with the steps and the fellowship and my sponsor and my friends Um, because I have friends today and I know how to ask for help today and um, I still have depression I still have anxiety I still have times where the disease hurts a lot. And do I think about a drink? Oh, yeah. I romanticize a drink and I tell on myself and I call my sponsor or I tell my husband, you know, I thought about a shot of bourbon. But, you know, I think about that shot of bourbon and I think, oh, it feel nice in my stomach right now, nice and warm. And then I think, yeah, it'll make me feel good for a few minutes. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to drink that whole Bottle, or I'm going to get wine and drink that, and I'm going to wake up and throw away all my sobriety and all my time and all this work, and I'm going to disappoint my sponsor, disappoint my sponsees, disappoint my husband, and nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to get better. A drink is never going to help anything. I don't do it. I found out a few months ago now that now I need heart surgery so yay me (laughs) I get to go back to the hospital um I need valve uh repair done on my heart and it's a good thing because I've had this valve problem my whole life so if they fix it I'll be I'll feel better physically hopefully you know that's the hope again coming in and um I have that surgery on July 11th, and when they first told me, my first thought as an alcoholic was, oh, I want a drink, but I didn't have that drink. And when I talked to the surgeon, I said, I don't really want opiates for pain meds, and he said, well, we can, we can do Tylenol, and if, and if you can't, you know, if you're in too much pain, your body won't heal, so if the Tylenol doesn't work, we're going to have to do something else but we certainly don't have to send you home with a prescription for opiates if you don't want them. And I said, good, I don't. And he said, why not? And I said, because I just don't want them. (laughs) And he said, okay. And so we'll see, you know, we'll see. I don't know what it's gonna feel like. I don't know what kind of pain I'm gonna be in, but I'm scared and I talk about it. I share about it in meetings. I talk to my sponsor about it, my husband, my friends. I can do that today. I never used to talk about what was scaring me when I, before I got sober. And that was another reason I drank. I drank to be in oblivion. You know, I have a lot of yes. I I don't have a DUI because I got lucky and because I took cabs a lot. I never went to prison or jail because I never got caught doing things that I did. I, you know, kept my job probably only because I worked remotely and you know I had a car you know all that kind of stuff but emotionally I had nothing nothing I had no hope I was completely hopeless when I got here and I had no future that I could see and I wanted to die I wanted to follow my late husband that killed himself today I live by the principles of this program As best as I can, and I see them to be honesty, hope, faith, courage, integrity, trust, willingness, um, humility, uh, responsibility, reparation or restitution, perseverance, spirituality, and service, and I love service. Service helps me a lot, whether it's in the community or in the fellowship, I love doing service, and... When I used to be asked to speak, I always said no, and now I always say yes, and I still get anxiety before I speak, but I feel that if I can even reach one person and tell them there's hope and sobriety, it's a good thing. So I say yes today. Um, incidentally, I've never spoken this long in a meeting uh, when I told my story, but since you have no time limit, it gave me a chance to Fill in some more of the blanks, which a lot of it is still coming back to me as I work the steps. Things still come back to me, whether it's Code of Steps, AA Steps, now doing the steps in this forgiveness book. Um, I'm still remembering things and and the progression of the disease and how it progressed so slowly without me realizing it. And me really thinking that my late husband was the only one with the problem, not me. And then after you died, just how quickly I spiraled and circled the drain and just how lucky I feel to have found Alcoholics Anonymous and how lucky I feel to have found Secular AA a year into sobriety, a year or so, give or take, um, And now I'm able to go to any meeting anywhere and be able to say I am agnostic. And and in New York, it's accepted. In Arizona, I didn't feel like it was. I really didn't, except for my free thinkers meetings. Um, But here in New York State, it doesn't seem like anybody really cares. They just want everybody to stay sober. And I love that about where I live today. Um, And I have bad days. I have scary days. I have... Um, days where all I can do is still lay in bed because I feel depressed and that's okay. Um, because most days I'm up, I'm around, I'm doing what I love and I have that magical word of hope. And I think with that, I will, I will stop and, um, say thank you for letting me share and tell you my story. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be asked. And, um. I hope I didn't bore you to tears and thank you for letting me share.